Hello everyone, uh, my name is Mishael Khoyatar. Uh, today I'm hosting Professor uh, Harry Holzer, the former chief labor economist in the Clinton administration in the 90s and the professor of uh, public policy at the uh, McCourt School uh, of Public Policy at Georgetown University. And today we will be talking about uh, Michael Strain's uh, recent book, uh, the American Dream is Not Dead, but Populism Could uh, Kill It. Uh, we'll be asking Professor Holzer uh, on, on his thoughts on the book, and the, as well as the topics discussed within the book, such as uh, income inequality, economic stagnation, and uh, social mobility. Um, so, Professor Holzer, uh, before we dig in deeply, into the general themes of the book, what would you say is the broad theme of, and the objectives of, of Michael Strain's uh, book? Well, um, so, so first let me say that you know, Michael is a friend of mine. He's a, a co-author. I think he's a very good economist. Uh, he's a very thoughtful guy on, on labor market issues. Uh, uh, I would characterize him as being a bit right of center, but, but very thoughtful. Hmm. Um, so I, I like him a lot. Um, um, I think, I think the overall theme of the book is things are not as bad as you have heard mm. uh, in the labor market. That he thinks that uh, on, on at least three topics: number one, overall wage stagnation; number two, inequality; uh, and number three, social mobility. He thinks that the commonly heard themes, at least from progressives, yeah. uh, is that those themes are more negative than he thinks the reality. So he, he tries to reanalyze from a lot of different angles mm. those, three, mm. uh, those three thoughts. Um, uh, and, and, and he indeed argues that as they see. And then there's a corollary that those people who think they're very bad, uh, at least some of the populists, more the conservative populists, but some on the left as well, uh, if they're, they're overstating the degree of loss for American workers, mm. and as a result of that, they're pushing trade and immigration policies that Michael thinks uh, would be harmful. So he says, if you overstate the damage, uh, um, you will then do policies that further the damage, and mm. that's what he's trying to dissuade us from doing. Interesting. And uh, again, b before we go into uh, some of the th more detailed themes in the book, uh, you mentioned uh, the right-wing as well as the left-wing uh, populists. Uh, if we were to name some uh, figures, not necessarily politicians, but people that were uh, prominent of both sides, does anyone come to mind in terms of economic policies uh, that might be anti-free trade and uh, that, that are counterproductive? Well, uh, you know, on, on the left, um, Bernie Sanders mm. uh, is the quickest to come to mind. Uh, on, certainly on trade. Now, on, on immigration, the left has really mellowed. And so the anti-immigration crowd is, is more of a, a purely conservative crowd, whereas the anti-trade crowd remains both right and left. Uh, and, and of course, if you, you know, if you're talking about sort of right-wing populism, mm. the most obvious answer is Donald Trump. Right. Um, and, and at least some of his strongest supporters. Steve uh, Bannon Congress, comes to mind. He does indeed. Mm. Uh, Tom Cotton mm. uh, and some others, you know, the, the, the nativist branch of the conservative wing and, and of the Republican Party has, has grown a lot. But, but those are its most prominent uh, um, representatives. Clear. Um, so 
I want to shift a little bit more towards uh, some of the topics discussed in the book. Uh, I guess, uh, how, how and like, why have progressives uh, and con- conservatives may have overestimated or underestimated uh, economic stagnation? I know that you have uh, thoughts on this and you, you, you tend to disagree on, on both workers. What are your thoughts on, on the perspective of both sides? Well, so this gets into, I, I, I do think Michael's book makes a few, uh, so, so I think it is worth reading, uh, even, though I, even though I think it's too optimistic. Um, so he makes two points, I think, that are correct. First of all, uh, uh, it's, it's too simplistic to say, as, as some economists say and some conservatives say, that there's been no wage growth for 40 years. Uh, that's a very frequently made comment, certainly mm. by journalists on this topic, and even by some left-wing economists, like those that some of my friends at the Economic Policy Institute. Mm. I think if you cut the data the right way, uh, it's not true that there's been no earnings growth at all. I'll, I'll come back to that point. But secondly, what Michael shows is that the exact answer you get varies a lot with which data you look at and exactly how you cut the data. Mm. So it turns out things like how do you adjust for inflation over time? Mm. That makes a huge difference. You know, uh, traditionally economists have used uh, the consumer price index. Uh, We know the consumer price index has overstated inflation. The most reasonable version of the consumer price index is called uh, the CPI research series. Again, my friends in the left think that's as far as you have to go to eliminate the overstatement of inflation. I disagree with that. So if you use the CPI, uh, even the research series, you can show no close to no earnings growth mm. over a four-year period, or maybe only something minimal, like 5% growth, something like that. Uh, what Michael also shows is that the answer is quite sensitive to the time period. Uh, and what he says is, why are we so obsessed with mm. starting with 1979 or 1980? Because he shows, for instance, that if you use 1990 instead of 1980, look at the next last 30 years rather than last 40, the numbers look somewhat better. And he's right. More broadly, depending on the series we talk about, um, you get a different answer. Now, what I would say in response to Michael on that is, well, if you're going to make that argument, mm. do the last 20 years. And if you do the last 20 years, the numbers get worse again. Interesting. You know, in other words, That's we know that the last, in the last 40 years, there have only been two periods with substantial earnings growth for the median worker. One was the late 1990s, and the other one was actually the last five or six years right. before the COVID crisis mm-hmm. started. So, so again, if, if, you, if you start in 1990, you're going to put a lot more weight on those two time periods. Yeah. But if you start in 2000, you miss that one period. So, so you know, Michael, Michael writes as if anywhere you cut the data does better than using 1979. That's incorrect. Mm. Um, and on other dimensions, uh, I, I think Michael's numbers are too positive. So let, let me, I'll throw out, so let me just talk about wage stagnation sure. for now. Yeah. Um, when I run the CPS survey, which is the data set that most people use to document these, these overall trends, I get a number that median earnings over the last four years, median, mm. uh, has gone up after adjusting for inflation has gone up about 20%. Interesting. So 20% is certainly more 
than my friends at the Economic Policy Institute say, because they say it's been close to zero, right. less, less than Michael says in lots of cases. Mm. And to be clear, I'm, I am using 1979 as the starting point. Uh, I am only looking at earnings, not at the value of various fringe benefits. I'm looking at the mean, mm. no, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the median, mm. not the mean. Yeah. Um, and I use the, you know, the, the, the inflation measure that I use uh, is a chain-weighted deflator for, uh, for GDP, a chain-weighted de- uh, GDP deflator that focuses on personal consumption. And without going into a lot of detail, on it, I think that's the best measure. Uh, so when I use that measure, I get about 20% earnings growth. Now, 20% over 40 years it's is not, not all that great. Mm-hmm. It's about a half a percentage point a year. Um, now, if you if you include a little bit of healthcare spending, because right. a lot of the dollars went to healthcare, yeah. and, and some of the healthcare expenditures are real, you can bump that number up a little bit. Mm. And if you include measures for things like people's four hundred one k's, about half the population, half of the labor market, labor force people have four hundred one k's. They've benefited from the stock market. So if you include some of that, it goes up. Yeah. It still it still leaves you. Maybe it's closer to 40% than 20%. Mm. It, it still leaves you with fairly weak earnings growth in a period of time when productivity mm. for labor went up about 75%. Right. Uh, so that, that's why I come out in between. Yeah. You know, Michael is too optimistic, and the left-wing journalists and economists are too pessimistic in my view. But, 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 but to say that there has been some stagnation, uh, I believe is is accurate. True, and and even uh, referring to your point, even if it it is indeed forty percent, that's still one uh, percent uh, a year rather than half percent, which is which is which is better, but not that great. Exactly. Uh, and exactly. you you've you've also, Professor, mentioned that you uh, uh, that you've ran your models uh, or calculations with with the median. Do you do you mind explaining to our listeners? Why the emphasis on median as opposed to the, the mean or average, which is often cited a lot by journalists uh, on the left and right? Right. I, I think that's an important distinction. You know, the mean uh, is the average uh, that you know we all have learned how to do, um, whereas the median is the 50% point, exactly the middle worker. Now, the reason, you know, mean earnings have grown more by median, the reason for that is that, as many people know, the very top uh, of, of workers' earnings in the United States, the top 1%, mm. say, or the top 10%, uh, that, what we call the tail of that distribution, uh, has gone up a lot. Yeah. So mean incorporates that tail, the median doesn't. Uh, so if you incorporate that very high upper tail, it pulls your, your estimate up the median, the 50% point, is unaffected by exactly how large the increases are at the very top. And uh, I, I want to move more towards uh, mobility. And the same question that we've asked on economic stagnation, but on social mobility, and specifically how have um, progressives and conservatives may have uh, either underestimated or overestimated um, the decline of social mobility in the United States. Sure. Well, so first let me talk about a little bit about inequality. Definitely. Because inequality and Absolutely. mobility are related. Correct. Um, and again, you know, Michael argues that recently grown by very much. He thinks the, the largest growth occurs at other periods of time. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree so much with that, except for the following. 
Michael and many other conservatives keep telling us we shouldn't be worried about inequality. Mm. The only thing we should worry about is Mobility. whether the median is rising. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter. And, and he wants the median to go up more. He wants the bottom end. He says we shouldn't worry about <clears throat> inequality. And, and so do many conservatives. I am troubled by that point of view. Uh, and, and as economists, I don't think we should think that way. Now, in economics, you know, what we usually say is uh, someone's well-being, what we call utility, uh, depends on their consumption of goods, goods and services, and that depends only on their own earnings, not somebody else's. As far as that goes, that's true. But, number one, we know that in the real world, people do care about their relative status as well as their own real status. In other words, if you get a 10% wage bump one year, and you might be happy about that, but if you find out that all your friends and coworkers got 20%, you'll be unhappy with that. Yeah, and, and we see that That's a good example. Yeah. So, so for economists to keep telling us the only thing that matters is, is one's real earnings. And again, it's the conservatives making that argument. Right. I, I, I think it's a phony argument. Mm. It doesn't, you know, you know, the sociologists have provided ample evidence that mm. relative deprivation matters. Mm. And you should take that seriously. But the other thing that troubles me about it is when you really think about it. So Michael's saying, the only thing that matters about what we can buy in life uh, is your own income, not relative to everyone else. That, that's actually fundamentally not true. Mm. There are many times and places uh, in the United States and every other economy where there's a limited number, a limited quantity, a very high quality uh, uh, goods and services that get rationed out. Mm. And if they're being rationed out, Inequality matters a lot. Right. People at the top of the inequality have a much have a much better chance. So, mm -hmm. for instance, uh, uh, political offices, you know, in Senate, in the Senate, in Congress, etc. We have a limited number; they get rationed out. And mm -hmm. if there's dramatic inequality in, in your society, the high end will get much more voice mm -hmm. in terms of who gets those slots. And we know that's happened uh, in in education. Uh, you know, there's a limited number of slots in the very best private K-12 schools right. in higher ed, the elite higher ed. Again, inequality gives high-income people a huge leg up. And we, and we know, we know that that level of inequality has gotten worse over time. Yeah. That the, the concentration of very high-income people in the elite schools has, has gone up. So it troubles me that these folks continue to say, let's not worry about inequality. And that's an argument that Michael does make in his book. Now, let me talk about social mobility. That's the other part of your question. Right. Um, uh, Michael argues, so. Well, can, can you define social mobility for our listeners? Sure. So, so social mobility uh, is the tendency of people to move up mm. over time, and especially people like to focus on what they call intergenerational mobility. Right. The ability of people to do better than their parents. Now, there's two very different concepts of social mobility. One is absolute mobility, mm -hmm. and the other one is relative mobility. Absolute mobility is do you earn more than your parents? Right. Not comparing yourself to everyone. Do mm -hmm. you earn more than your parents adjusted for inflation at right. the same point in their life? Right. That's absolute mobility. Yeah. Relative mobility is, you know, compared to everyone else, are you in, in the top quintile or the middle quintile or the bottom quintile of earnings distribution? And do you have a higher relative position than your parents? Mm. Now, conservatives... So, you know, the, the relative mobility is, is essentially a measure of inequality. And are, are you 
changing your position in the inequality spectrum. Since conservatives don't think we should worry about inequality, they're only concerned with absolute mobility. Are you earning more than your parents? So, number one, I think the exclusive focus on absolute mobility is too strong. I think relative mobility can be important as well. If you want to say we have an equal opportunity society, everybody should have an equal chance of Mm. ending up in the middle or at the top uh, of the distribution. We know that's vastly not true. But let's then talk about absolute mobility. So Michael, I think, makes the case that that's what really counts. Uh, There is a famous uh, stylized fact that has come out in the last few years by by the economist Raj Chetty and some of his uh, Mm co-authors. And that, that stylized only half of Americans say of my generation or younger are doing better than their parents Mm. uh, at the same point in life. Uh, Historically, that number was like 90 plus Mm. percent, Mm. now only half. So if half of Americans are doing worse than their parents, that really, and if the median person is doing sort of no, but that really tells us that we have a big big stagnation problem. Michael says it's not true. And Michael adjusts the calculations for certain measurement issues like family size and things like that, he ends up saying it's only a third, only a third of Americans in the book. And he even has some calculations that say maybe closer to a quarter than a third. Mm. What I say to Michael is, even if you're 100% correct on your calculations, that's still a really big number doing worse than their parents, right? Or doing no better. Right. I mean, if a third, if a third of Americans are worse off, and, and we know who those people are. We know those people overwhelmingly are the working class, mm. the white working class, maybe to some extent the black working class. We know what's happened to the working class in this country mm. uh, over, over the last 30, 40 years. That's a lot of people. Not, so even if I take Michael's numbers, and I know there's some people who criticize Michael's calculations, but even if it's only a third, that's way too many people. And, and my recollection from his book is what he says, the median, the median person on that mobility distribution is making something like 11% more than their parents. That's not a good number. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're on average, we're talking about people 30 years past their parents at that same age. And at 30 years, they're only doing 11% better. So even if you take Michael's numbers as being exactly correct, I think they're more discouraging uh, than he lets on. Um, and, and let me say one more thing about these yeah. numbers that kind of uh, numbers nerds like me will think about. Some people will say, that the composition has changed and that that's driving results. For instance, as a lot more people have gone to college over time, exactly who the people are with only high school diplomas has gotten worse. Right. That's true. Mm. On the other hand, you could say the same thing for people going to college, mm. right? If you move more people from the middle into college, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring down both averages. So that's not really convincing. Mm. Another thing I've heard some, some conservatives say, uh, there's a well-known conservative named Scott Winship who writes a lot of these issues. And he has said, you know, we have the distribution is very different because we have so many immigrants that have entered America since about 1980. And those immigrants bring down the average. Mm. Fair enough. You know, a lot of, of immigrants, those immigrants who come with very little formal education do bring down the average. But there's other things happening that pulls the average up. For instance, we know that so many working class men have dropped out of the labor force, you know, something like 20%. Mm. So it's like you're cutting off 
a big chunk of the bottom of the wage distribution. True. Well, when you do that, it bounces in the upward direction. So all people are arguing that the composition is different, and it's, you know, I, I, I think those arguments can go either way. And, yeah. and they don't convince me. They don't convince me that, that we don't have something to worry about. Interesting. And actually, since you mentioned uh, Raj Sherry's uh, paper, um, I believe they've used tax uh, records in, in their paper to, uh, to, to study uh, social mobility. So perhaps even um, even focusing on tax records is underestimating uh, how bad social mobility is because you're only capturing the people who have uh, who we have full tax records about but perhaps the the low-income workers we are uh, or the low-income people that are in the informal economy or that don't necessarily pay their taxes every year might, might be absent from that sample is that a fair uh, argument? There are, yes, I mean, there are critics of the IRS data. Uh, there's an economist uh, in Washington, D.C. named Stephen Rose, mm. and he's written a few things about all the problems with the IRS data. You know, it strikes me, I don't know which way the bias on that goes. Oh, interesting. Um, right? I mean, for instance, you're probably getting more low-income people now since we, since we dramatically have increased the earned income tax credit. True. Uh, Low-income people have more incentive to, to file, file now right. than they did, they did 30 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. So, so that alone might might bring down. That's true. That's to depress fair. the amount of, of earnings growth over time. Yeah. On the other hand, there's so much more wealth out there by people at the high end. Mm. And, and we know that small business owners tend to, to so that, understate there. So, that's so, a good point. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, I think that there's a number of criticisms. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it nets out. Yeah. But yeah, we should be careful with those mm. issues. Uh, you know, I, I think Chetty and others have used other data sets as well, mm. like the panel study of income dynamics. Oh, true, yes. That. So, so there's, there's other. Uh, right. I, I, think, I think they all show fairly low absolute mobility mm. over time, uh, you, you know, whichever data set you use. Interesting. So the, the following was not uh, mentioned in, in Michael Strain's book, but it has been in the news a lot lately, which is... Um, some uh, no, well-known universities, like the University of Southern California, um, have decided, I'm not sure if it's starting by next year, but anyways, sometime in the near future, they're going to abandon standardized exams, um, such as the SAT, for, for students. And, and that relates to uh, like the two topics, inequality and social mobility, because um, we've heard arguments from both sides. So, so the USC side of the argument is that um, those standardized exams have uh, historically uh, negatively affected um, people of color uh, and uh, low-income students, while others have, have made the, uh, the opposite ar argument that those tests are the, um, one of the primary tools where uh, low-income students kind of get a leg up and are able to compete, uh, so it's an, it equates opportunities, uh, in a sense. What are your thoughts on on both arguments? Uh, it's 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 a very interesting uh, and important argument, and I did a hundred percent which way I go. I I think right now I lean a little more towards the University of California's viewpoints on this that it might be better to get rid of it. But let me tell why why it's not a really clear cut issue. If you take a really long historical look say you go back a half a century even further closer to three quarters or a full century 
I think the use of standardized tests and grades was an equalizing factor. Because remember, you know, a hundred years ago, it was overwhelmingly sort of upper crust, very high income families mm. whose sons, not even daughters, whose sons got right. to go to these mm. universities, you know, come out of Harvard and Princeton and Columbia. Um, and that was very unfair. Right. Uh, I think starting to put more emphasis on tests and uniform tests that everybody takes, I think it was a move in the direction of what some people call meritocracy. Mm. That is really based on your ability and your performance, not so much your family background. Yeah. So I think initially, and I think there are certain groups, uh, uh, Jewish Americans, Asian Americans, uh, who were initially excluded. And I think the use of, of measures of academic merit, yeah. like grades and test scores, have really benefited those groups a lot. Yeah. However, I think in the last few decades, uh, the use of those measures, especially the standardized tests, has really favored not so much maybe the top 1%, but mm. certainly the top 20%. How so, Professor? Because I think we, those groups have learned how to game their performance. Interesting. And how, and how, to, how their kids have gamed their performance mm. to do much, much better than everybody else in those tests. And, and I know this, I, I, I sent two new kids to college about a year ago, uh, my, my twin daughters. And I did whatever the other relatively high income family. I got them tutoring mm. for those tests and made all kinds of other inputs. So over time, I think the fraction of the people doing really well, or let me put it another way, the people performing really well in those tests has increasingly reflected the very high income groups because they have they have learned how to gain or or how to do better right. on those tests than mm. anyone else. So what might have been an equalizing uh, tool of meritocracy 60, 70, 80 years ago, I think now is likely having the opposite effect. Yeah. Um, you know, grades are in, I think grades grades depend on a lot on which school you go to. I don't think grades skew quite as highly to the very, very top end, they still do to some extent. Yeah. Um, but but I, I think I lean towards supporting the University of California in, in getting rid of the effect of those tests. I think on net that would be equalizing and, and it, would, it would give lower income kids a better shot at the really good schools. Are there any themes or ideas that were in the book that we have not uh covered that you'd like to mention uh, or any any anything else? Yeah, so, so the, one, the one thing we didn't really talk about was policy and, and the policy mechanism. So Michael says uh, the populists are, are overstating the damage and they'll do more harm than good, uh, especially on issues like trade and immigration. I tend to agree mostly mm. with Michael on that. I mm. think in general, I think immigration has generally been good for America and trade has been good for America for the vast majority of people here. But I won't go quite as far as Michael does. I think the evidence of the last 10 or 20 years shows us that trade has been more harmful to the American working class than we thought. Right. Now, now, of course, they like going to Walmart and buying low price imports but, but trade on workers, and of course the one big change has been because of, of, of imports from China uh, in the decade from 2000 to 2010, right after we admitted China to the World Trade mm. Organization. There was a huge influx of cheap manufactured products right. from China, 
that alone, that wiped out two to three million manufacturing jobs in a very short period of time. And I think that really added to the woes of the U.S. working class, uh, especially in areas like Michigan, Ohio, mm. Pennsylvania. And, and of course, we know those folks voted heavily for Donald Trump. Correct. So I think the, the, the benefits of trade still exist. The costs to the American working class, I think, were higher than we thought. And I'd say mm. the same thing about immigration. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, here you have to be a little careful. I think high Highly educated immigrants bring a lot of benefits to the society, but less educated immigrants, particularly from Latin America, do end up competing with the American working mm. class. Uh, and, and I think their effects on the working class have probably been more negative as well. Yeah. So while I agree with Mike that there are a lot of positives because of trade and immigration, I think we should acknowledge the negatives and, and what it calls for is not a ban on immigrants. What it calls for is not import tariffs, but being a little more careful, some reforms in those areas, mm. maybe tilting immigration a little more in the direction of the highly skilled. Yeah. Uh, maybe having a few more protections for workers and the environment in our trade agreements. Yeah. So I'm probably with Michael on that, but, but I, again, I think he overstates uh, the optimism on that. The other thing is, well, what else can help? You know, if, if, you, if you think like me mm. that the bottom half in America, the bottom third, have not done very well. What can we do to help them? Here again, Michael and I would agree on a few things. Number one, we would agree on the importance of education, mm. uh, and especially education at post-secondary education below the level of BA. Uh, Michael has a whole chapter on the middle of the labor market and middle-level skills, and he cites me pretty heavily, and I, I tend to agree with his analysis mm. there. We also agree on things like expanding the earned income tax credit even more. As but opposed to increasing the minimum wage? Is that, that's right. Mm. Michael does not support any minimum wage increase. Mm. You know, I support moderate increases. I wouldn't. I wouldn't uh, do, do you mind elaborating on, on that uh, kind of a little bit? Like the, the trade-off, uh, if we should say, sure. between the two? Right. I mean, I mean, most economists continue to believe that if you just bump up the minimum wage, uh, all else equal, you're making labor more expensive to the employer and therefore like any other entity hiring thing or buying things mm -hmm. the employer will buy less labor they'll hire fewer workers there's an enormous literature on this hundreds of studies which if you have moderately sized wage minimum wage increase 10 percent 20 percent spread across many years the job loss is very small it's not zero but it's very small you might be talking about a few percent the employment of youth or of high school dropouts. So my, and, 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 and I think the benefits of those people outweigh the cost. So I tend to support moderate increases. But I fear that if you, if you run up to $15 too quickly, the negative effects will grow much, much larger. $15 an hour right now is about 70% of the median wage in America. And if you wait till 2025, like some of the progressives want to do, it'll still be about 60%. Mm. To me, that's too high. Um, Especially in Southern or Midwestern states where the minimum wage is, I mean, around eight to $9. So the increase well, that, will be dramatic right. and, there. And that's right. And in fact, there's a lot of red states, mm. Southern states like Virginia, where it remains seven and a quarter. Mm. So if you force places like Virginia to go from seven and a quarter up to 15, more than doubling in a very small time period, you're gonna see some job loss there. And, and, and um, in those places uh, uh, and, and other places too, you know, rural areas, rural areas, there's, there's some rural states 
where the median itself isn't much higher than 15 right now. Mm. You can be wiping out a lot of jobs. So I favor moderate minimum wage increases, but not really large ones or really, really rapid ones. Michael tends to oppose all of them. I think Michael doesn't take collective bargaining very seriously. I think the disappearance of collective bargaining in the private sector is one of the factors that's led to more stagnation mm. and more inequality. It's not the largest factor, but I think I think it is. Fact. I think workers need some protection, some voice. Mm. Uh, I, I think employer power uh, has has grown stronger. Mm. Monopoly power, uh, the ability of employers to abuse the labor market to actually limit competition has grown stronger. So, so there's some areas that Michael and I agree on, mm. like education and tax credit. But I would, I would cast a wider net and bring a wider range of tools to the inequality and mobility and stagnation issue. Yeah. Um, but, but again, but, but maybe, maybe again, not going as far as some of my more progressive friends would go. Clear. And I want to actually go back to uh, immigration and, and uh, since you've mentioned uh, Walmart as well, um, I think, do you agree that one of the tricky things with measuring the effects of immigration, whether positive or negative, is that it, it tends to have a distributional effect that varies by state or, or region. Uh, and thus, it's hard to look at it only from a nationwide perspective. So what I mean is that if we look at it from uh, a nationwide perspective, things tend to be generally on the positive side. But then uh, if we were to focus, as you've mentioned, uh, on, on its effect on states like uh, Michigan or, or Pennsylvania that were heavy with, uh, on manufacturing, then we, we, we get a clearer picture that it did have a negative effect uh, well, on well, workers. Let me, so let me be careful about that. I think sure. trade, trade had a bigger negative effect on durable manufacturing in those states you just mentioned, in the industrial Midwest. Mm. So the costs of trade have been more negative. Um, yes, you're right. If you look at many other regions, like the two coasts and the largest metropolitan areas, there the trade effects are a lot more positive. Mm. You know, and, and, and we get to enjoy the benefits of cheaper goods, cheaper goods and services mm. without bearing the cost right. for the Midwest workers. So yeah, trade is certainly rapid. Uh, immigration probably is as well, because immigration also, even though immigrants have been spreading out all over the whole country, uh, you know, immigrants remain somewhat more concentrated around certain ports of entry, mm. the coasts, the largest metro areas. Um, and, and, and there again, uh, you know, where they are most concentrated, uh, some of the benefits of immigration uh, may be larger, uh, but also some of the costs. And immigrants, the industries where immigrants have been most important, it's less about durable manufacturing. Trade is really her durable manufacturing. True. It's more about non-durable manufacturing. Everything from meat processing plants to garments and textiles to those kinds of things. Immigrants have hurt workers in those industries, mm. uh, often in the South. Uh, the Carolinas, for instance, historically had a lot of garments. Mm. Uh, but also, you know, industries like residential construction, um, commercial construction, much less construction where a lot of the work can be done by very low-skilled workers. Immigrants have had a big presence in that and, and have competed away many native-born workers in those jobs and also the low end of, of, of personal services as well. So I would agree with you that, that the uh, impacts both of trade and immigration are uneven geographically. Mm. 
And, and one other thing, you know, historically, if a set of economic forces hurt a certain region more than others, what you would see is, is a large migration out of that region to other places. In other words, workers with a certain level of education would, would move from the worse areas to the better areas. We're seeing a lot less of that immigration, of, of migration. Right. We don't really fully understand why. Mm. But in some sense, so, so if the Midwest has really suffered because of, of international trade and imports, we're seeing less movement out of those places now mm. by working class people than we used to. We don't fully understand why that is, but even that makes the whole policy adjustment process yeah. more complicated. Do we encourage more of those people to leave or do we let them stay where they are and try to help them where they are? Mm. Well, well uh, actually, this is an interesting point that I would like to a little bit expand on. So I tend to be on the side of, of uh, encouraging workers and, and providing some form of, of uh, a tax subsidy or a deduction that that at least covers uh, relocation expenses or like moving moving expenses. And I know um, some economists also like that idea. Uh, do you mind talking about this side as well as the counter arguments that tend to come from mayors or governors of, of the economically distressed regions? Sure, I, I think there is an argument for helping people move, uh, especially people without college degrees. People with college degrees do this very naturally. Uh, people without college degrees don't. Uh, we've known for a long time, for instance, that people without college degrees are more tied to their families and their communities, and that's a, and they, that's a strong argument against their moving away. And, and we know, of course, and they pay much less attention to the national labor market. Uh, finding where those jobs are. So we could help them move more. Uh, we could subsidize the moves. We could provide more more information, etc. The argument against that is twofold. Number one, the mayors uh, and the governors uh, and the congressmen and women and senators in those places will be unhappy because mm -hmm. their, their constituencies will shrink, so they will oppose you strongly on that. Mm -hmm. uh, and number two... You know, it's 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 possible that no matter how much you help, some people simply are not going to want to move. Mm. They want to be near their families and their communities. Right. So, you know, I, I guess in the end, I fare, I favor both approaches. You know, some modest assistance, mm. helping people move to where labor markets are stronger, but maybe doing a little more for the local economies and job creation where they live right now. Yeah. I don't think we have, I don't think it has to be an either or choice, yeah. even though economists. Uh, have, have most historically have mostly favored the subsidizing the moves option rather than the helping them where they are. Yeah, interesting. And actually, uh, want to also mention an example of this. So Detroit, Michigan, always comes into uh, discussions about a city that was uh, struggling economically about uh, eight, eight or seven years ago as a result of the recession, and that has recovered a lot. Not only because of uh, the uh, the rebound of manufacturing activities, but also there's a rise, I would say, of a small uh, tech sectors by people that moved into Detroit. Uh, what 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 kind of recovery is that? Is it is it? Do you think it's a, res a result of um, investment coming into the city, uh, federally or state run? Uh, what 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 is the story with Detroit basically? Well, well Detroit's a very interesting place. Uh, I actually co-authored a book about Detroit uh, when I taught at Michigan State University mm -hmm. uh, in the 1990s. Right. Um, 
so Detroit has begun turning around. Mm. Uh, it's one of those. It's 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 the classic story of gentrification that early on, you know, housing prices became so low mm-hmm. that young tech entrepreneurs started moving in. Uh, uh, and we're talking about 2010 and 11? Is that the period? Yeah, about, about mm-hmm. a decade ago, yeah. Uh, things were so depressed that housing prices were very low. So, so a, a, a community of very young entrepreneurs started moving in, started providing, creating both some tech industry there, but also some service industry, you know, restaurants and entertainment, and it blossomed, uh, and, and it grew, and it kind of took off. And, and you're right that if you look at overall economic activity in Detroit, it has rebounded somewhat mm. from the terrible low levels, uh, you know, that it reached at the bottom of the Great Recession. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 and of course, it, those folks are getting hit by COVID as well pretty hard. But there has been some bouncing back. But what I will say is, you know, as, as any time it's a gentrification-led issue, the benefits are very uneven. Mm. Um, the, the gentrifiers over, overwhelmingly have been young, college-educated folks. And, of course, when they marry and start having kids, they're still quite likely to move out. Of mm. True. Uh, they're driving a lot of the higher uh, activity, the, the growing employment. If you Again, if you look at... <clears throat> older and less educated residents of Detroit, the numbers are still pretty bad. Uh, and in fact, there has been a permanent movement overall of population out of the city and out of the labor force. Mm. Uh, and, and the new gentrification doesn't change that. Oh, interesting. Uh, yeah, relatively few of those benefits have trickled down mm. to older uh, and less educated Detroit residents. Yeah. I, I wrote a paper on that about a year ago as well. Um, the labor force participation numbers of the older and less educated remain quite depressed. Mm. And, and, so, and so those folks don't even show up in the overall numbers on education and employment that have been trickling up a little bit over time. Yeah, I think that, that's a bit of a, what I'll about to say, maybe is an unpopular opinion, but I've heard that uh, in spite of uh, some, a lot of the negatives perhaps of gentrification, it tends to have... Uh, some positive effects as well in terms of like let's think about like the perhaps the the new coffee shops or restaurants and uh, perhaps uh, uh, better paying um, better paying jobs that gentrification brings into a region that's otherwise uh, would have been distressed is that a a fair argument or is it a a negligible effect it's, it's another issue where I used to agree with you 100%, and mm. now I agree a little less. You know, yes, overall, all else equal, uh, it's better to mm. have, in a metropolitan area, to have employment growth, uh, earnings growth, uh, all else equal, it's better. It's better for less educated workers, it's better for the poor to have more activity rather than less. But this is what's changed in the last decade or two. The cost of housing, in those areas has gone up so much mm. that it drives it drives poor people away. Poor mm. people can't afford to live anymore near where the jobs are. Interesting. And they're, they're, they, 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 they share fewer of the economic benefits than they might have a generation or two ago. So while I used to agree with you 100%, uh, anything that spurs activity in areas like Detroit uh, and well and and various parts of Ohio and Pennsylvania, Youngstown and mm. Akron, 
I would, you know, I used to say anything yeah. uh, is a good thing. Now I'm saying once you factor in housing, it's it's less obvious. Interesting. And especially especially if you're talking about cities like San Francisco, you know, the coastal oh, area. It's really it's it's impossible for low wage workers mm. to live anywhere near the jobs. You no know, doubt. it's not as serious a problem in Detroit and places like that. Mm. Um, but but even there, the housing prices start going up and ends up being a mixed bag for the sort of the lowest income workers. Appreciate it, Professor. Um, okay. Thanks for your time, Professor. My, my uh, pleasure. Great discussion as usual. Uh, okay. And uh, you know when 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 you definitely you know send send me a copy. Well, I will for sure. Okay. Appreciate it, Professor. Take Have care, a great man. afternoon. Take care. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.